Hello, and welcome to the Behind the Science podcast from our events team at Cancer Research UK. This virtual event was titled From Funding Stream to Bloodstream, Is Drug Development Moving Fast Enough? and featured a panel of three researchers who told the story of how they navigated the tricky path from bench to business to bedside and discuss what the future holds for drug development in a post-COVID world. The panel was hosted by BBC journalist Jane Hill, who was introduced by Cancer Research UK's Chief Executive, Michelle Mitchell. The discussion is closed by Cancer Research UK trustee, Robert Easton. Good evening, everybody. I'm Michelle Mitchell, the Chief Executive of Cancer Research UK, and it's my great pleasure to give you a very warm welcome on what I hope is a lovely spring evening with you. I hope you and your family are well, and uh, we all appreciate you joining this evening's event. I think I can speak for us all when we say the last 12 months has been a period of great uncertainty for all of us, for our families, for our friends, for cancer patients, for our researchers and scientists, and of course, for us as a charity. But I'm particularly proud of how we have responded, proud of how determined our team has been to meet head on the opportunities uh, the last 12 months has presented as well as the challenges. I'm proud that it is science and our wonderful scientists who have helped provide the route map out of the pandemic uh, for us here in the UK. And of course, we desperately hope for everybody around the world. But cancer hasn't stopped because of COVID and our mission has never, ever been more important. And I would say our ambition to beat cancer has never been greater. So a huge thank you to you for your generosity, uh, your commitment over the last year and your support is more important than ever right now. So a huge thank you to you. Now, moving on to this evening's event, um, Behind the Science is an opportunity for us to showcase the breadth, the significant breadth of CRUK's best science through telling human stories of the researchers uh, to explore where we are now, how we got here and where we're going next. Tonight, we're going to take a deep dive into the world of drug development. You'll know it can take decades to turn a discovery in the lab into a new treatment that can benefit people with cancer. And here for us at Cancer Research UK, we provide funding for the full research pipeline from basic laboratory research through to clinical trials. And it's thanks really to this carefully crafted pipeline, our researchers have played a part in developing eight of the world's top 10 cancer drugs. That's quite a, quite a record and quite, quite an achievement. So tonight we're going to take you um, behind the scenes on cancer research success stories. And today we're going to be looking at PARP inhibitors. You'll hear how some of the people behind this discovery navigated the tricky path from bench uh, to business, to bedside. And following a year that has seen the COVID-19 pandemic accelerate the rate of change for pharma and life sciences like never before, we're going to pose the question, what does this mean for the development of cancer drugs in the future? So 
Let's Go Behind the Science. And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome our host for this evening, Jane Hill. Jane uh, will be known to many of you. She's a BBC journalist and presenter and also a passionate supporter of a number of charities, including us. So we're delighted she's here to expertly host for us this evening. So please join me in welcoming Jane Hill. Over to you, Jane. Michelle, thank you very much indeed. Hello, a very good evening uh, to all of you. Thank you so much for watching tonight. Uh, maybe I shouldn't even say tonight. Maybe some of you are in different time zones, the joy of the internet, but a very warm welcome and thank you for your support of Cancer Research UK. And I am hugely excited to hear from our wonderful three panelists tonight because we have some real specialists who have been, as Michelle suggested, at the absolute heart of some very, very important drug developments. Uh, one of the reasons I support Cancer Research UK uh, is because I was diagnosed with breast cancer myself two and a half years ago. Um, and I talk about it very openly. Uh, I'm very open, for example, about the fact that I chose to have a mastectomy but did not have reconstruction. I just think it's really important to, to demystify and to um, support, if I possibly can, in any tiny way, any woman who is going through the same thing or women's partners and friends who are going through the same thing. So I talk about that a lot. Um, but one of the things I discovered on my uh, cancer <laughs> journey, I try so hard as a journalist not to use that word, but, it, but it's very hard, um, is that it turned out, it didn't, we didn't know, the doctors didn't know until they, uh, until I was under the knife that my breast cancer was in fact lobular. It wasn't ductal, which is the, what most, most women tend to get. And lobular breast cancer only makes up about 10 to 15% of all cancer cases in the UK. And of course, as a journalist, I was therefore fascinated by this, but also fascinated and, and horrified to discover how little is known about lobular versus ductal. And my goodness, there on in, the research just goes and goes and goes, and it shows me in a very personal way, how much research is still needed in so many different cancers and how there is still so much more to do uh, across the field. And that is why I am such a, a passionate supporter of Cancer Research UK and everything it does. So that is why I am with you tonight. Um, but you will be delighted to hear that, uh, importantly, we are going to crack on and hear from three people with um, huge experience in this field. I am a classic arts graduate, so I am completely in awe of everything that these three people have achieved, but I hope that I will be able to um, uh, encourage them to uh, describe for us in, in sort of clear layman's terms exactly what they have managed to achieve over the coming uh, the last few decades, but also why it takes so long to get a drug when that initial idea happens, it takes it such a very, very long time to get it actually into people, into cancer patients who need that drug. I certainly have never understood really why it takes quite that long. So let's chat to three people who can explain why, how the process works, some of their personal stories and experiences, and also that crucial question that Michelle mentioned. Things have changed so rapidly, haven't they, in the last year or so under COVID. And we know that a lot in the scientific and research and medical field have really sped up because of COVID. So let's try and find some positives in the pandemic. And I'm interested to find out whether the COVID pandemic perhaps will speed and aid exactly what we're discussing tonight can speed up the development of drugs and get them to people who really, really need them. We will be hearing from Professor Steve Jackson from Cambridge University. 
who played a key role in uh, PARP inhibitors, also from Professor Ruth Plummer from Newcastle University and Professor Simon Bolton, who's based at the Francis Crick Institute in London. So more from them to come. But also very important to stress that uh, if you're like me, you'll probably have loads of questions as our conversation continues. So there is, I hope you can see on the left, a Q&A box. Please, please, if you have questions as we go along, you don't have to wait till the end of the conversation. If you have questions, please do put them in that box. Uh, I'm keeping an eye. If I look away from the screen, it's because I'm keeping an eye on my iPad where I'm monitoring for all the questions that are coming in. So please uh, do send questions. We'll get through as many of those as we can once I've uh, had a chat with our three guests. And there is also a poll. I hope that will pop up. There's a second box that can pop up there near your Q&A box, uh, a poll function. And that is the, the opinion poll, if you like, that we're asking tonight, whether you feel that drug development process perhaps will speed up as a result of everything that's changed during the COVID pandemic. So do uh, enter the poll as well. Give your opinions if you are so inclined. But particularly, we're very, very keen to hear your questions. So do use that Q&A box if you possibly can. So let us start with a man who uh, is very, very significant in all of this. Professor G Steve Jackson, a very warm welcome. Thank you for being with us. Uh, based at Cambridge University, among many other things, Steve is the founder of Kudos Pharmaceuticals. I hope I've pronounced that correctly, Steve. You'll tell me if not. Um, who developed uh, the PARP inhibitor Olaparib. Where does the emphasis go on that word? I've never known. I some ovarian. A laparib, a laparib, I stand corrected, a laparib, for, uh, which is used in some ovarian, breast, pancreatic and prostate cancers. Steve has a, a fascinating story to tell us. And I, I think I'm right in saying, Steve, as an opener, this is your 30th year of being funded or having help with your funding from CRUK. Take us, if you will, right back to the beginning, your initial discovery that that started, um, I'm going to use that word again, that started your journey with, with PARP inhibitors and, and led to the remarkable developments that you made. Great. Well, if, if I can cast my mind back, um, it does actually go back even slightly further than 30 years. Um, I was actually working in the San Francisco Bay Area at the UC Berkeley at the time as a postdoc. And it was a Sunday afternoon experiment, which was no unusual thing for me. I spent most of my weekends in the lab. I stumbled across a new enzyme protein, um, which I later found was activated by broken DNA. And this was a bit of a eureka moment. And it led me and led certain other scientists uh, elsewhere in the world into a fascinating field of DNA repair. And so, What's going on in our cells, we've learned over the years, is that the DNA in our cells is continually being damaged. And there are certain proteins, um, molecular policemen, if you like, that survey our cells and recognize the damage and then mediate its repair. And so we identified one of the first of those. Um, and over the years, we've learned that there are others, um, including uh, the protein called PARP, which is the target of drugs such as Olaparib. Um, so it was that chance discovery that took my lab into new directions. It allowed me to set up my lab in Cambridge and get CRUK funding. Uh, and it's, 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 it's been a great privilege to have CRUK funding my lab um, all over, throughout those years. Um, it was only a, a few years later, working in this area, we, I recognised that some of these proteins we're working on, these DNA repair proteins, were actually what you'd call druggable. 
the type of things that you could imagine generating drugs against. And at that stage, I was a young professor, um, knowing no boundaries um, in those days. Um, and so I thought, well, why don't we set up a, a DNA repair company to develop drugs against DNA repair enzymes? Simple concept, but it actually turned out to be very difficult to get the show on the road because it was a bold new idea. It was actually counterintuitive. And it took me almost two years of very hard efforts to actually get anybody to consider investing in this area. And what was the, you say it was bold, what was the resistance from the investors? What was the anxiety? Talk us through that process and because and, that explains why some of these things take so long. Because on the face of it, again, to a, a lay person like me, I think, great, if that's going to benefit lots of cancer patients, as a, as a pharma company, that's going to make me lots of money. Great, I'm on board. So where were the stumbling blocks? Well, I think many organisations, pharmaceutical companies are intrinsically uh, conservative with small c. Um, organisations like Cancer Research UK, however, um, have the breadth um, and the, the, the ability to take a number of bets on promising new areas of research. And so over the years, Cancer Research UK has funded my, my lab and other labs, and it allowed us to build up our ideas to get to a stage where um, venture capital groups would invest in, in Kudos, which turned out to be the world's first DNA repair company. And one of the conceptual problems was, why would you want to inhibit DNA repair? Because DNA repair is a good thing. The thing that did it with the investors was, was a very simple idea. And, and it's an obvious idea, I guess, really. If you want to successfully treat cancer, you need to find a way of killing the cancer cells without killing the normal cells of the patient. Um, that sounds simple, but how can you do that? Well, we realized that a way of doing that will be to exploit a key difference between the cancer cell and the normal cell in the body. And we actually know that many cancers are deficient in certain DNA repair processes. And that means they are more reliant on others. And so the simple concept would be if a cancer cell has lost one DNA repair pathway, it's going to be very reliant on another pathway. If we could develop drugs against that other pathway, such as pump inhibitors, we would selectively kill the cancer cell, but not the normal cell that has the full balance of DNA repair mechanisms. So it took us a few years to develop compounds which um, exploited that concept. Um, again, there are, there are, there are chance uh, encounters along the way. I remember one in particular meeting Professor Alan Ashworth, then at the Institute of Cancer Research in London. Um, we were actually at a, a late night bar at a conference in Oxford uh, when we basically realized that I, through my kudos linkages, had some drugs and he had some cells, a BRCA1 and BRCA2 deficient cells. And within a matter of a month after that, we got some eureka moments when we realized that these drugs would selectively kill the cancer cell, but not the normal cells. And if that, I mean, that again, to me, sounds like a hugely exciting moment. That, that conversation sounds remarkable to me. I mean, that's sort of yeah. giving me, you know, the, the hairs are going up. Um, by the same token, <laughs> I'm also really interested. It, it, is this because I'm a cynical journalist? I think, um, is it a very competitive field that you're in? And are you then instantly in a situation where you think, oh, but I thought of it first, it's my idea. I don't know. Where is that balance between this is brilliant, this is going to benefit so many people and um, I'd quite like my name attached to this. <laughs> is it healthy competition, uh, I guess? <laughs> well, well, absolutely. I, I, I guess like uh, 
people in other walks of life, um, uh, people at the cutting edge often have have some some ego, uh, and we all like to think that we uh, we are. But the fact is, science is actually a very very. There is competition, but science is is a very cooperative um, thing throughout the world. Scientists talk to each other; they share ideas, uh, and particularly in the UK, um, with the CRUK backing, we we're basically part of a larger family, and we all know that none of us can actually take something from A to Z on our own, and that you need this ecosystem, if you like, of scientists, and of course some competition can be a positive thing, it spurs you along, and also if somebody else is working on the same kind of thing, you sort of think, well, it, it must be a good idea if, if we have plumbers working on it as well. <laughs> so so I, think, I think, and in the end, um, that's what moves things along. Um, but of course, it's not just academic scientists, it's people with commercial brains, it's the clinicians, and it's the patients themselves. It's this ecosystem that allows you to get from an idea all the way to, to a drug. And I think we might come on to this a little bit later on. I actually think science moves faster now. We have certain techniques and approaches that we wouldn't have dreamed of a few years ago. Um, and we, I think, have opportunities now to get things to patients more effectively and get things to the right patients. And that's this thing called precision medicine. It's not just coming up with the drugs, it's finding the patients that are most likely to respond positively and benefit from the drug. And that also can accelerate the whole process. Yes, uh, yes, and I hope we absolutely will will come on to that. Uh, you mentioned Ruth, we'll hear from her in a moment, but I, but this is all, a lot of what you're describing, if I've got this the chronology correct, this is all happening when you're in Cambridge and you yep. then uh, at some stage obviously realized discovered that some similar work was going on in newcastle yes absolutely so so this was a time when i actually had a young family doing a fixer up a house setting up a company and running an academic lab partly funded mainly funded by cancer research uk so um it, it was it was a it was a tough time but it was a very exciting time um, you weren't slacking I was aware of <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was aware of, um, of, of, of Ruth and colleagues at, at the University of Newcastle. And in fact, we were collaborating with them uh, on another project. So um, there, was, there was no hard feelings. Uh, and again, knowing that there's another group working on a similar thing um, uh, actually helps to spur you along. Um, so I, I think, and hopefully Ruth will agree, that it, it, was, it was friendly competition, um, but with a, with a common goal. And um, I think in the end, raising the opportunity in BRCA1 and BRCA2 cancers, one thing that was very crucial in that, that was actually publishing the results in the, uh, in the journal Nature. And this was actually a back-to-back -back paper, our paper and the paper connected to Newcastle. Uh, and that has more resonance when it's coming from two different places. And it made people, I think throughout the world, sit up and really take note and then move ahead with the clinical trials with added gusto. That's really interesting. Um, just just to be really specific, I know you've made the point that things you think are, move a little quicker now, but but actually how many years then from your initial, as you described it, your initial simple idea where you realised what could be achieved and actually, let's say, getting to a clinical trial then, how many years of development is that? So it was 1997, I had the concept for Kudos. It took me nearly two years to get the company off the ground, 1999. We essentially had the compound, um, Alaprib, uh, four years later. Uh, we'd formulated it within another year or so, and we got it into people 
um, in 2005. So that, that is, is quite quick. Um, the clinical trial and to registration was 2014. That's when the first PARP inhibitor, uh, basically Alaparib, basically became a, a registered drug. And that is a long period of time. And part of the reason why it took so long is that the pharmaceutical company that, that took things forward after acquiring Qdos um, didn't really listen to the science. And I think this is changing in pharmaceutical companies right now. The issue was you have a drug, ideally you might want it to treat all breast cancers or all ovarian cancers. But the science was telling us that you should take this into patients with BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations. Um, if you don't listen to the science, you can carry out clinical trials that don't succeed because you haven't selected the right patients. So we are now in a situation, I think, that that stage between, let's say, 2005 and 2014, I can imagine us doing that kind of thing much quicker now and much more effectively because we are much more effective at sequencing uh, and checking the genes in different cancers and basically categorizing patients in the past all breast cancer patients will be treated in the same way. And as you, you pointed out a few moments ago, um, there are different kinds of breast cancers. And so maybe it's no surprise that you should, the best treatments will be different for different types of breast cancer. And we're much better now than we were just a few years ago at identifying those differences, um, allowing us to stratify the patients to get the drug to the right patients. And if you do that, it's good for the patients, but it also means the clinical trials are quicker. Um, and yes. that's that's why it took so long. One of the biggest reasons is the clinical pro trial process. Oh, it is it is fascinating, um, Steve. For now, thank you very much. I could talk to you for a long time, but we uh, let's let's um, continue the conversation by moving to to Ruth. Thank you, and Steve, of course, will come back and uh, and join in our conversation and answer any of your questions you have about that. I know there's lots more we could discuss. Let's talk to Professor Ruth Plummer, who Steve has mentioned from Newcastle University. Uh, Ruth was the first person to bring the PARP inhibitors to the clinical trial stage. She leads the Sir Bobby Robson Cancer Trials Research Centre. Um, the Cancer Research UK Newcastle Cancer Centre and is a consultant medical oncologist, among many other things. Ruth, hello. Good evening to you. Good evening. And you you wrote, I believe, the first prescription for a PARP inhibitor. Is that right? Yes, on a CRUK sponsored and run trial. Um, I wrote the first, well, treated the first three patients and for a while, had treated more patients with PARP inhibitors than anybody in the world because, as, as Steve has said, it's collaborative. I've also done trials with um, Alaparib as well as Rucaparib, which is the CRUK um, sort of wholly sort of developed and sponsored PARP inhibitor, that they really took a punt. Going to Steve's comment about sort of risks and the breadth and what CRUK will do, because the story in Newcastle started before I qualified as a doctor, with um, my two mentors, Hilary Calvert and Herbie Newell, being funded by CIUK to do a drug an academic drug discovery program and trying to find a PARP inhibitor was their first project that CIUK funded and believed in. And they looked at the competitive landscape and at the time it was considered too high risk to target this fascinating DNA repair that Steve so eloquently um, explained. So they actually started that project um, 
back in 1990. And it just, again, shows this sort of timeline. And Steve's right, we're faster now. But you need the right science to be able to then, you know, do to take drugs into the clinic because cancer is complicated, cancer is evolving, and we absolutely have to understand and pinpoint the right drug to the right patient or the right tumour. Of course, of course, and you and and you're a, a consultant oncologist, uh, the sort of person with how, with whom I am now uh, very familiar here here in London. And and so, do you in your day? To, there's nothing day to day about what you do, but in your day to day work, um, uh, are you still absolutely at the heart of of sometimes discussing PARP inhibitors or or, or using them, or, or you know, it's very much part of your world. Yeah. So so my job. Um, as, as part of the whole team, because all of this is team science, is mm. to work out how to safely take these clever ideas, the new drugs, into the clinic. So my clinic tomorrow morning will be full of patients who have been referred to us on the Bobby Robson unit because they know they've got cancer, they're running out of treatment options, and therefore they're prepared to discuss with us whether they'll take something that's experimental where we might be unsure about dose, we might be uncertain about side effects, but we think we might have a new cancer drug. And I very much regard those patients almost as part of the team when we discuss how we're going to do this. So that's what I do and, and certainly got, well, Steve talked about collaborative um, projects. We did work with the QDOS team. They're great, great friends, great fun. <laughs> and one of the drugs that, that was a QDOS drug and then evolved into AstraZeneca and now developing it. I'm actually involved in the clinical trial of that agent at the moment where we're working out dose and working out how to do it. So these these links go on and on. But yes, um, Rucaparib and Alaparib are licensed agents. I have a, a, a couple of ladies who are on still on an early Alaparib study who did fantastically well and are still on drug. And that also is the deal. If people, if patients with us take a risk on a trial and they do well absolutely it would not be ethical to take them off the study so we do have some patients who can you know get lucky we got the science right however you look at it but then stay on on the drug so i yes i i currently have patients on alaparib who are on the unit and not anybody on rucaparib in my practice, because now that drug, like Alaparib, is licensed in ovarian cancer and BRCA-related cancers. And my clinical practice is at a slightly, it, it's patients in a different place. I mean, that, that's fascinating. And you, you it, it's so lovely that you talk about so much of it as a team effort and, and teamwork. I mean, I will just um, ask you a similar thought that I was discussing with Steve, which is, in terms of the the length of time it takes for for all of this to come to fruition uh, is there an, is is healthy competition actually a good thing between different centers across the uk maybe even different centers across the world that i don't know about uh, but but within the scientific community is that is that all actually fundamentally quite helpful yes and i guess for, for me Maybe it's slightly different because once you get drugs into the clinic, all the intellectual property, all that sort of competitive stuff is protected. It is exciting to be first, but actually you want to get it right. And I think the healthy competition is is important, but it's a collaborative science. We chat. We chat at conferences when we're allowed to go to them. We chat, as as Steve has said, in the, the you know, the late night sessions or out in the sunshine with a coffee. And those two critical papers that alerted the world to the story of 
Bracker and, and Parp, they were published collaboratively back to back in Nature to emphasize there were two groups that had looked at the science, followed the same thing. And within six weeks of the paper coming out, I'd written a trial protocol that CRUK agreed to fund to take Rucaprib also into BRCA patients. And the second patient I treated with, a, 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 with Rucaprib who had a BRCA mutation responded. So it was really clear that you know the scientists were getting this right for us and we could translate what they'd found into the clinic. So it was very exciting. And you know, CRUK very much was behind us, academics who you know had a, a, a drug going down a slightly different route, although Rucaprib has now been developed by an industry partner, because that is the way of the world. We, you know, clinical trials are really expensive and there's a point at which somebody needs mm -hmm. to take on that expense. And, and we work collaboratively and it's, I think, as Steve said, it's really important that we, we get that talking right because the most important thing is we get the right drugs into patients as quickly as we can. And when you uh, mentioned the, the, the BRCA patient there, I mean, to, to be really blunt about it, is that, are you talking about a lady who had gone through lots of other treatment options now because she responded to to being on your trial her life is extended is is that what we're talking about yes and and yeah. one of these patients who i've had on for such a long time talked to me when she first went on that her goal was to see the children out of primary school and they're both nearly through secondary school oh you, you know oh, it, cuts me yeah yeah. yeah, you know, and for me, when people ask what makes me feel not, not good about it, what am I proud of? It's the individual patient stories that really touch you. And that's what gives me a fantastic team on the trials unit. And that's always tempered by the fact that there are people who will come onto a trial and will say to me, well, if it doesn't help me, it might help somebody else. That altruism that we see in people who know they've got a tumor that is likely to shorten their life is incredible. So it's a very special place to work. Yes. Oh, you're, well, you're bringing, you're bringing tears to my <laughs> eyes. And it seems no, in a good way, but, um, uh, but, but I'm getting the sense from you and from Steve that again, because we're, we're talking about the duration here and you've explained the complexities obviously of this and the nature of clinical trials. Is it, would it be fair to say that so much of what you are, have worked on and are working on, um, I mean, it really relies on, on that sort of drip drip of funding because you, you, this, it, it wouldn't happen otherwise. It, it wouldn't happen without the investment in the research and the clinical trials. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the Newcastle team, that the, the preclinical science team, alongside Steve's team, led the way here, but that was funded by CRUK. At that point, back in the early 90s, there wasn't other investment, but CRUK looked at the, you know, that the proposals were being put to them, believed in the potential of the science and took it forward. I was thinking when Steve um, was chatting about his moment in, in on a Sunday afternoon, I can pinpoint my involvement because um, I could give you a date, but I won't. And, and it's the, the 20, 20 years because when I moved from straightforward clinical training to become a clinical academic and actually got part of the PARP team, um, my 
wonderful mentors, Hilary and Herbie, who I'd mentioned, were very determined as well and got somebody to come onto the postnatal ward the day after I had our daughter to tell me there was a job coming up and did I want to switch tracks. So um, Emily will soon be 21, so I know exactly how long I've been uh, involved in, <laughs> in PARP and projects as well. <laughs> and my goodness, that's how much you wanted to be involved, that you had a you had the shock of a newborn, a wonderful shock, I'm sure, but you're thinking, I've just given birth. <laughs> I can't deal with so, this. Yes, I, yeah. No, no, they said, there's a job coming out, you need to watch out for it and you're to apply. So I did. <laughs> and the rest is history, as they say. Oh, yes. that's lovely. Ruth, thank you so much. Uh, you'll be with us for the Q&A as well. Thank you very much, yes. Professor Ruth Plummer. Um, as, uh, as with Steve, many, many more questions I have for Ruth. But um, let's uh, continue because I also would love to hear from Professor Simon Bolton, who is based at the Francis Crick Institute uh, here in London. Uh, Simon is co-founder of Artios Pharma Limited, which is a, a biotech company that is developing DNA repair inhibitors that could be used in combination with other treatments, uh, including uh, PARP inhibitors. And uh, Simon Bolton, lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much. And the Francis Crick Institute, what a quite extraordinary place that is. I was very, very privileged to be given a tour of that after I was um, getting back up and running after my operation. And it was a great privilege and very, very humbling to see uh, and try to understand some of the remarkable work that is going on there. Um, now, and and there's there's a connection because you did your PhD in Steve's lab, I think I'm right in saying. That's correct, Jane. Yeah, good evening. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I was uh, one of Steve's first PhD students. I think I was the third one. And, and this was at the time that actually Steve had, was, had just made the discovery that uh, he mentioned about this DNA activated uh, DNA repair enzyme. And I was incredibly naive at the time. I, I didn't really know what this meant. And I, I actually, I don't think Steve even knew the, the ramifications of what, what the lab had discovered. And, uh, but, but still, you know, with Cancer Research UK's support, the lab very quickly turned into six people, uh, including me, into a massive team. Uh, we were spread all over the ground floor uh, and it was an amazing experience um, and it was towards the end of my PhD that actually Steve set up um, a QDOS. So I was kind of exposed to QDOS but it, I didn't have too much of an involvement. I then went to Boston to do my postdoctoral training at Harvard Medical School and ultimately came back again to continue my work uh, supported by Cancer Research UK. Uh, at Clare Hall Laboratories before I moved to the Crick. But I think that that time uh, in Steve's lab, it, Steve was incredibly enthusiastic. It was infectious, really, and that was really what I took from Steve's lab was this passion for science. And, and you know, it's it's lived with me to this day. Uh, and I try to pass it on to my, my, my uh, students and postdocs in my lab. But actually, uh, the, the story's quite interesting because when I was in Steve's lab, um, I was working on a on on this DNA activated uh, repair enzyme, and we found that when you take it out in cells, you knock it out. Essentially, you can you can do that genetic genetic engineering. We can knock out genes. We discovered a backup DNA repair pathway, and it, it caused lots of errors. We didn't actually know what this meant at the time, and I think this plays to the point about how new technologies uh, need to come into being in order to really fully understand uh, you know, certain discoveries in the past. 
Well, that backup DNA repair pathway turned out to once the advent of DNA sequencing technology. So how we can now sequence genomes very, very rapidly so we can genetically profile uh, individuals. It became apparent that uh, there was an error-prone mechanism that is in operation in a lot of cancer cells. Uh, and it turns out that that error-prone DNA repair mechanism um, is, is driven by uh, a, um, a, an enzyme, a bit like PARP, but it's called Pulsita. And, and actually, this is where Arteos really came into being. Again, there's a huge link to Cancer Research UK. They have a, a drug discovery unit. Um, Ruth has mentioned this. Uh, there was obviously the unit up in Newcastle. But we actually worked um, in collaboration with Jeff Higgins at Oxford and Cancer Research UK to develop um, a number of DNA repair inhibitors. And they were the foundation for, for Arteos. Now, Steve mentioned the challenges of trying to convince venture uh, to invest in, in, in his company, right? Well, the reason it was so challenging was because it was the first. For, for, Q, uh, for Arteos, which was probably the second DNA repair company uh, about that, uh, it was incredibly straightforward because the, the legacy had already been set that the pioneering work that Ruth and Steve and others have done really set the groundwork for for many DNA repair companies that now exist around the world. You know, every big pharma company has a DNA repair portfolio, pretty much. Uh, and so in that sense, it's much easier. It was very easy for us to raise the money uh, to, to, to develop this, this, this company. So what do we do? So this, this, this company is developing kind of the next generation of DNA repair inhibitors. So one of the challenge that, challenges that Ruth faces, and I'm sure many cancer patients have seen this, that initially their, their cancers respond to certain treatments, in some cases PARP inhibitors. But unfortunately, many of those patients ultimately succumb to what's called resistance. The tumor mm -hmm. acquires change. It's very much like COVID and these variants, right? They're mutations that give the tumor a different capability in this case, resistance to PARP. So there is an urgent need for us to develop new inhibitors that can tackle things like PARP resistance. But what, what Steve and, and uh, Ruth have talked about in terms of DNA repair inhibitors is just the tip of the iceberg. What we're now understanding is that many, many cancers have different DNA repair deficiencies. Um, and we have now ways, at least genetically, and hopefully in the next few years, we will have inhibitors that can ta target those genetic differences uh, in a very similar way to PARP, so selectively killing the cancer while sparing the normal tissue. So that's really what is happening all over the world as a result of what Steve, Ruth, and a few others pioneered with QDOS, Alaprib, etc. And it was lovely to hear you talk so passionately about clearly being inspired, I think, if that's by Steve's work. I mean, he, he clearly instilled a, a passion in you. I mean, your, your passion for this comes across when you talk about it. And and I'm, I'm struck that you said you now have PhD students yourself. Um, do, do you sort of hope or think that they pick up on that? Do you, you know, what 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 do you say to them about the future and and, and where this where all this could go? Well, I, I think 
things have changed in a very positive way. When when I was in Steve's lab, the concept of translation it was never discussed, really, to be honest with you. Translation is how we dis we take a discovery in the laboratory to a drug that will have the uh, impact or potential benefit for patients. Now, the environment that, that we work in at the Crick, and this is true across many institutions, scientific institutions, research institutions around the world, is that we are embedded with teams um, who whose whose role is basically to look at the discovery and see whether there is potential for us to move it towards a drug dis the discovery program with a view to, to generating a medicine uh, that will have benefit for patient lives. And in fact, the Crick is a great example of that. We have partnerships, uh, people embedded from GlaxoSmithKline, AstraZeneca, uh, Merck, actually in the building. And we work with them to try and identify areas of, of mutual uh, interest that we can develop ultimately, potentially, to develop new drugs. And that just didn't exist 20 years ago when I was, 25 years ago, uh, when I was doing my PhD with Steve. So that's that's a real positive and, and, a, and a great way that things have really come together. And CIUK have played a, an instrumental role in that throughout. Yes, again, it takes it takes us to the heart. And I know from another major health charity that I work with, nothing to do with cancer, that, uh, you know, clinical trials are eye-wateringly expensive. And then if you get one as they had that very sadly didn't get the result they were hoping for, although a couple of patients benefited hugely from it, um, that sense of, oh, my goodness, and sort of almost going back to the drawing board, not only is heartbreaking, but but uh, you know, financially, I don't. Crippling is probably too strong a word. But 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 you need the you need the money to keep going if that happens on a clinical trial. Absolutely, and I think it's very important to appreciate, and we've seen that with COVID, the importance of uh, big pharma. They have huge financial bandwidth, and they have the capability to manufacture on scale, and that you know, for particularly for vaccinations, that's. Uh, you know, has, it would never have happened without them. Uh, and so when you get to the kind of, um, the, the, we, can, we can essentially afford to do early phase clinical trials, so uh, phase one clinical trials uh, as a small company, for example. And in fact, Arteos have um, started back in end of 2016 and already we have uh, one uh, drug in clinical trials uh, from January and we will have our second drug in the clinic uh, in uh, in the third quarter of this year. We can afford just about to do the, f the first clinical trials, but what we hope is that if we have efficacy, so namely that the drug does what we hope it will do, then we will need to partner with pharmaceutical companies to then take that forward into phase two, phase three clinical trials. Cancer Research UK help as much as they can, but you know, even with their financial clout, it becomes extremely challenging to take the take drugs all the way through to registration. It's an extremely expensive process, um, mm. and so we're we're very much dependent ultimately on linking up with pharmaceutical companies. Mm. Thank you, Simon. Uh, lovely to hear your passion for it all. Uh, let's bring the three of you together, if I may. Uh, thank you. Uh, absolutely fascinating. And you've explained so eloquently what you do, the remarkable results. Uh, but also, of course, there's always more to discover and there's always more people to help. So it is just really humbling to hear all your stories. Um, I'm just going to forgive me, uh, everybody watching, but I am going to um, 
make no apologies for just checking uh, checking the iPad because we have got questions coming in and I'd like to get through as many of those uh, as we possibly can. Here we are. Let's refresh the page. Um, so there's a number of questions. We're talking about uh, speed and and uh, and so on. In fact, in particular reference to the crick, there's a question from Daniel which says. I think the crick is all about. I thought the crick was all about faster progress through collaboration. How does competition fit with that fundamental concept? Um, Simon, can I come to you first on that, as it mentions the crick? But you might you might all take a view. Yeah, we absolutely we we're in in healthy competition with uh, with others all around the world. So there are many groups, academic researchers all around the work world working on related problems. Um, I mean, Steve and I are in competition to some extent, um, and that's just the way it is. And in fact, it's it's healthy competition. And the, the you know, the example Steve gave that actually two stories came out at the same time gives you huge confidence that the concept is robust uh, because two people have two groups have found it independently. So competition still exists. Um, but there, there is now a, a, a realization that we need to be working more effectively in partnership, um, and that's really what the, the the Francis Crick Institute has set up to try and develop closer connections with industry to to help um, translate those findings. The findings that we you know the the research that we do in my lab is, as I mentioned, in direct competition with others. It's the way it is. Those are also setting up companies around the world. So again, it's it plays to this idea that there is a momentum now that's that's well that has started from Steve and Ruth uh, from QDOS. It's absolutely fair to say that they started all of this. They were the pioneers, and there are many many others around the world that are now pushing. Yeah, we're all in competition, um, but it's a healthy competition, and it's very good for science. Uh, yeah, Steve, do do come in on this too. Yes. So I think sometimes you find yourself entering a competitive space, but the best way forward then is to synergize with the other group, uh, academic group, or even companies. And, and, and we see this increasingly. When I started my PhD and, and in the time when Simon was working with me, you'd often have research papers with just a couple of, or a small number of authors. Um, and what we're now finding, and partly because science is more complicated and more labor intensive and more multidimensional, Many of the works that we do now are actually collaborations that involve my lab plus other groups in the UK, uh, our collaborators um, in the US and in continental Europe, for example. So I think we're increasingly seeing that in science that um, out of apparent competition can actually come synergy and cooperation. Mm. And you see, Ruth. I like it on the clinical side. I like it because I you know, want to take good drugs into the clinic. Um, and I've done a number of PARP inhibitors. We've also other DNA repair enzymes like the ATR inhibitor. We took the first in class one of those into the clinic and have done various other ones. And you learn from that. And those trials and what you find out inform getting these drugs in the right way to patients. So for me, the fact that it's almost, well, as people have been saying, almost reassuring if more than one person is working in an area, you think, well, then, then that's, it's probably right. It's a valid target and it's great. I, I think I'm missing one or two PARP inhibitors for a trial, but other than that, I've done a trial with almost all of them at some point. 
<laughs> that, that's so lovely. I'm, I am going to, I promise I'm going to take that thought to the newsroom with me the next time I'm doing these sort of stories, because maybe, maybe it's my fault for, uh, you know, the, the cynical, the cynical journalist sort of approach to it. And, and absolutely, I take on board what you say that you, you sort of think it's a good thing if other people in other areas are, are working on the, trying to find the, the same solution to the same problem. Um, a, we, we talked, we haven't talked as much uh, as I thought we might about the pandemic. Perhaps that's no bad thing after the year we've all had, but, but of course, we've seen such dramatic change and we're all aware of it. Um, let's bring in a thought about that because a question from Helen says, do you think the rate of change that COVID has accelerated can be sustained and affect real progress for cancer detection and treatment? Um, Ruth, can I come to you on that one first? I think, I mean, it's been a very difficult year. We've been quite privileged up here as we were talking earlier and beautiful evening up in Northumberland um, because we haven't been as badly affected as friends and colleagues in the south of England. So we actually have kept the early phase unit open and Michelle and I have chatted about this. You know, we our trust allowed me to, to stay open as long as the hospital was coping so that we could keep offering clinical trials to patients who had a need of them. But I think there are, have been some really good things that have come out of this. We've you know, been forced to adapt. We've been asked for more flexibility and therefore been able to ask less of patients. You know, it, it's often quite hard to make people change the processes they've got in place because that's how you do it. But we've been um, for patients established on trials, posting drugs out, not making them come up and stand in lines in pharmacy to pick them up. We've been allowed to do blood tests nearer to home or to speak to patients and do telemedicine. And that all, that I think we've had an evolution that's been really positive. It's much easier in my clinic talking to patients about trials, because I say I do early phase trials and everybody knows that you do phase one, two and three trials at the moment to get a drug licensed. So, you know, there, there has been that element, but it's also raised the interest in research and we're seeing more referrals. Well, people saying, well, if, you know, if, if you know, you develop new new treatments, so how does it happen in cancer? And our patients are very clear. They, When I talked to somebody back at the beginning of the pandemic about coming up for a trial and the risk because he was going to need to come into the hospital and, and would this be an issue? And he said, can I just say, I am trying not to die of cancer. I'll just come. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> I think it has, you know, people are aware, but the, there are as Michelle said, it hasn't gone away as a problem. And we mustn't forget mm. that. There have been awful things with the pandemic, but also there is still a need in, in what is the heart and soul of what we three do as research as well, to get better treatments for cancer patients. And there are some adaptations we've got that have been good, and but it's been a tough year and we've had patients poorly, patients lose family members, you know, and staff, and it's been awful. Yes. In terms of the, yes, yeah, Steve, I do want to, because Steve and Simon were both nodding through yes. that. So uh, in terms, I'm, I'm interested in that as well, whether um, just everything that everyone has lived through, even with people with no scientific background or knowledge or understanding pre-pandemic, do you feel that the, the public are are more, more on board, that they're, 
suddenly as a nation we're much more interested in science and trials mm. and experiments and I mean, I'm, I'm using very basic language, but but Steve, I'll come to you first. I mean, is is the public more on your side as clinicians and researchers now? Maybe. I mean, my view is that uh, that out there are obviously some huge negatives with the the, the COVID pandemic, oh, yeah. uh, particularly in the in, in the clinical arena, uh, and also particularly for young people, uh, because the lifeblood of research and clin and the clinical translation uh, rests with people. Uh, and the next generation of scientists. Uh, and they're having really hard time now at university. We're not able to host them in our lab, but I'm hoping obviously as the, uh, during the course of this year um, that we are gonna be able to um, nurture these young talents. Uh, and I do actually think um, where we are right now, there is a, a realization that science is a force for good. And it's actually something that we in the UK are very, very good at. I'm quite patriotic, and I think the UK has taken a leading yes. role in in so many different areas. You know, it's not just the it's not just the vaccines; it's the DNA sequencing, it's identifying the variants, it's coming up with the first dexamethasone, for example, being used to to extend the lives of patients. The UK has done an amazing job, and I don't think it's quietly being um, um, publicised as, as as much as it perhaps should have been. But I think a lot of that has seeped in, and I'm hoping that that will inspire the next generation of the best minds in this country um, to to take up science and, and, and want to move into this arena because in the end it's about smart people working hard cooperatively uh, for the future so I, I'm, I'm optimistic in that regard and I think it's highlighted the importance of science and you know the world can change but but health um, is, is is a fundamental thing um, that's going to be a crucial thing, whatever society we end up in, in 50 years time or whatever. Mm. Yes, Simon, did you have a thought on that as well before I bring in a couple of other questions? Yeah, I mean, my, my view echoes what uh, Ruth and Steve said. I think there's certainly much greater public awareness of science and research and mm. clinical trials um, and, and the process that we have to go through, the challenges that we face. And I think that can only be a good thing. Uh, you know, the discussions between scientists, clinicians and, and, and uh, general, ger the general public um, will obviously hopefully continue. I think my, my, my observations from the pandemic, you know, trying to take a positive uh, a view of it, well, we've, we've, we've been able to implement mass screening for COVID um, within this country and across across the world and that I suppose you could imagine repurposing that to the benefit of cancer patients I mean we already already sequence uh, patient tumors through genomic England for example but if we were to, to be able to do this on a larger scale to be able to to react more effectively using the technology actually a technology that we use to detect variants sequencing etc uh, the computational methods that we have to employ to to look at that that would be a great thing because it will play into what ruth and and steve have talked about is about patient stratification identifying those brac those breast cancer patients who have BRCA mutations that would you would predict should respond to PARP. if we can do that more effectively by repurposing some of the uh, testing capability that we now have, um, expanding it even more. I think that would be a real positive towards uh, cancer moving forward. Mm. 
Uh, interesting. Thank you. There's a, there is a question here related to vaccines as well, which is interesting. I hadn't thought of um, Fiorella saying with the advent of the mRNA vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna, Moderna technology, would it be possible to develop cancer vaccines or cancer treatments quite quickly? I'd never thought about cancer vaccines. My goodness. Who wants to uh, who wants to to take on that question? I could say a couple of <laughs> I, th I think it's an example of a technology that's 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 now coming through one arena, and we are increasingly seeing um, that that cancer is one area, but 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 certain things that are relevant for cancer are arising in in treatments for other diseases, uh, and so I think across the board um, we're now seeing that these different fields are cross fertilizing one another, um, and of course some cancers do differ from normal cells in the way they look to the immune system. Uh, and another very exciting area of cancer therapy is called immuno-oncology. So that is a very exciting, uh, uh, very rapidly developing area of oncology. Uh, and increasingly, it appears that these DNA repair inhibitors and PARP inhibitors have potential for being used in combination with immuno-oncology. So I think that's, that's an interesting domain for the future. Uh, someone has spotted that some of our speakers have mentioned training in both the UK and the US and they're interested in how would you compare and contrast those experiences and also this is interesting how valuable is it to have global training experiences I've never thought about that uh, Simon so do you want to I, leap I, in on that one I yeah can, I can yes um, I think it's it's very important. I think you're, you're, the, the, the steepest uh, part of the learning curve is when you move to a new environment. Um, you know, I was when I moved from Edinburgh to Steve's lab, th those first 12 months were a baptism of fire, you know, trying to understand the concepts that were going on in the lab. But eventually, you, you know, I, they, they became familiar, etc. But when I moved to Boston, the same thing happened again. And I mean, it's very important for scientists to move during their career to to create connections and to experience different ways of thinking. Um, it, you don't have to necessarily go to the US, you could go somewhere else in Europe. I think the, the fact that the, the language of science is English helps us, particularly in the UK, in the US for us to move. Um, but obviously, many other countries, uh, you know, in Europe, for example, they speak English in the labs uh, because English, as I say, is the language of science. That that is a really key part of your your development as a scientist to become progressively independent is to be exposed to to to, to new people, new ways of thinking. And I think if we all stayed in one place, um, we wouldn't have that breadth of, of vision and, and thought that is so important when we're thinking very laterally about uh, what we're what we're doing and making connections that no nobody else has ever done. I mean, that's essentially what we do as a job is to try and find out something new. We can't go and look it up on Google, right? We actually have to make loads of mistakes to ultimately find something that, oh, it works like this. Uh, and, and I think that key is a key training is to go somewhere else. And we, we encourage all of our students and postdocs to do that. Yeah, interesting. And Steve, you started us this evening by by talking about those Sundays that you spent in the lab when you were in the Bay Area. Yes, I mean, I was in the Bay Area for, for, for two years before I 
I found time to go and visit the San Francisco, San Francisco or the or the San Francisco Bridge. So I was so addicted to science <laughs> in those days. Um, uh, my wife reminds me uh, about those days. Um, but um, back to Simon's point, I think one thing you need to be as a scientist to be a successful scientist is is to take some educated gambles, if you like. You need to be bold. Um, and you might not necessarily put all your eggs in one basket, but if, to do something new, you have to be bold. Um, and that could be Ruth, the first PARP inhibitor of going into a patient and you don't know if it's going to be toxic. You have to be careful where you need to be, but you need to be bold. And I think if young people or people are used to um, pushing themselves um, outside of their comfort zone early on in their career and being successful, they know that they can succeed when they do that. Uh, and in the end, I think building that self-belief, uh, obviously in an environment where your colleagues support you, is, is the best environment to come up with the, the most exciting new science, um, to build that um, resilience and self-belief that you need to do that. Thank you. Uh, questions come through from John, actually, which is which is really interesting because it ties in with uh, I mean, we've talked obviously so much about the, the, the length of time it takes to, to get things into clinical to get ideas into clinical trials. Uh, John Moulton saying, do you see any ways to reduce the costs of clinical trials, uh, which is, it seems like a very, very sensible question, which hadn't occurred to me. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't know where to start with that. Who, who would like to talk about the reducing the cost of clinical trials, making all that donated money go further, I suppose. Well, Ruth. I think we are starting to do that. And it's, it's to what Steve said about precision medicine, because the cheapest clinical trial is to get it right first time. And we've got some cancer drugs which were licensed off the back of the phase one trial, the track inhibitors, because they, the scientists knew the mutation that was driving the tumor. They targeted that with a drug and then the trial was done in those patients. And it was actually that one of the key trials was done right across the age range from really young children up to 80 year olds because it was done on the tumor driver, that precision medicine. So if you get it right first time, which is a challenge to do, that would be the cheapest way to do a clinical trial. One of the reasons they're expensive is that you've got to get the safety right. These are people. And one of the problems with trying to treat a cancer is as Steve alluded to, you want, you want to kill the cells, you want to kill the cancer cells, but you're trying to kill human cells that have gone wrong inside that human. And getting that right is difficult and you've got to get the safety right. And that means extra checks, extra tests. And you know, we have fantastic support within the NHS for running clinical trials and investment from the government. So actually, the UK is a good place to do that sort of work. Um, but you still need to, you know, pay the costs of those extra tests. But yeah, the way to do it right and to do it faster and cheaper is to, to, to follow the science and adapt to the science, not be blinkered, don't not listen when somebody tells you they've got a new thought you've got to be prepared to adapt uh, and i think well, certainly steve i saw nodding well yes during, during ruth's, yeah, ruth's I, answer. I, I don't have all that much to, to add to, to ruth i mean i think that the, the whole process is becoming more efficient and effective because science is moving faster we have gene editing technologies 
DNA sequencing. I mean, DNA sequencing now is 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 million folds better and cheaper um, per bit of DNA sequence than it was a couple of decades ago. Um, and so combining that with actually advances in the drug discovery process. Drug discovery process is getting better. There are now things such as artificial intelligence and machine learning, um, which is being used not just to beat Gary Kasparov of a chess, but also to predict the structures of proteins and predict the molecules that might interfere with those proteins. So I think we're on the cusp of new developments that may accelerate the drug discovery process as well. And combining that with the stratification, uh, choosing the right patients for the right drug that, you, that, that, um, that, that, that um, um, we've just discussed a moment ago, putting those things together will make it, I think, cheaper, but also more efficient and, and quicker. Yes, I'm, I'm fascinated by stratification and I know that keeps coming up. Uh, and Simon, just your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think I'd just like to play to Steve's point about the advances in drug discovery as well. I mean, the, one, of the, one of the reasons why drugs are so expensive is because of there's a huge failure rate. Um, you know, and it's not because people aren't good at their job. It's just it's an inherent problem that, you know, when you do start to develop a drug, it can fall over at so many different points in the process. You know, you can have the best drug that kills the cancer cell, but you put it into the, to an, into an individual, um, as, as Ruth pointed out, and you get a toxicity that you just didn't anticipate, and the drug fails. And I think what we are now in a much better place. There are new advances in chemistry that mean that rather than having to do one target at a time, we can take a, a holistic approach where we can do uh, drug discovery on a process rather than on an individual target and we can do that in cells and al al already that uh, addresses a major bottleneck in drug discovery that um, that that you can't get the drug into the cells right <laughs> which is a, a key problem I mean it's, it's ridiculous you know oh we can't get it into cells it's insoluble it can't go in right so we already circumvent that problem and I think the what Steve was talking about that actually we start starting to be able to use uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning to take huge data sets that we're able to create. Uh, and there's no way a human could possibly process all this information and integrate all the data that we have now across the world to really drive discovery and translation much more effectively. So that is happening and it wasn't happening even five years ago. So I think that early, early problems with drug discovery, it won't go away, but I think there are ways of mitigating some of the early risks. Mm. And that will bring um, down costs because there won't be a failure rate, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. Yes, which is exactly where we started with Ruth Point. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I'm conscious that we did ask um, people watching tonight to uh, just vote on what they thought in terms of whether the drug development process will get swifter as a result of the pandemic. Um, just uh, for those who are interested, 73% of people think it will get faster as a result of everything we've been through during COVID. 17% um, said no, they didn't think it would make any difference. Um, uh, just as, a, as a, a closing thought from all of you, actually, before we, we close the evening, I wonder, perhaps I could ask you to, to 
reflect on a positive going forward what, what what are the i know you've touched on a lot of it but what are the, the positives the, the the options that are out there the exciting developments that you feel are, are perhaps in the pipeline um in in future in future years uh, just be nice to end on a, on a positive note if we if we if we can uh ruth can i can i come to you first what are you working on or what are you excited about that's coming down the pipeline well, I think for me, it's the breadth of what's becoming possible. I mean, I, because I was trained in, in Newcastle with the team, the CRUK funded team there, it was small molecules, it was chemicals like Steve talks about. But now I give a lot of immunotherapy. We've got trials combining immunotherapy with DNA repair inhibitors, but we've got, you know, the antibody drug conjugates. In lockdown, we actually treated the first patient with a um, a new type of cellular therapy as well. So it's the breadth is the positive. And I've been a consultant nearly 20 years and cancer treatment has got so much better in that time. We've got people living with and what we need to do, living well with cancer. But actually what we need to do is that critical piece of early detection, early diagnosis, so that we can stop people having to live with it. But you know, maybe a step, a, a positive step in the right direction is absolutely, there are so many more effective treatments now compared to where I started 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, yes, I have a, 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 a relative who has had extraordinary results with immunotherapy for lung cancer at the moment. Yeah. And it's just, of course, there are side effects and there's always, but but it is, it is absolutely remarkable. It has been remarkable. So, um, uh, Simon, your, your thoughts on uh, a, a note of positivity? Well, I think if we, if we go back to the very beginning of the conversation, the, the, the PARP story that Steve and Ruth were instrumental in developing, that really set in play a... Um, a, a huge area now in science. There are, you know, many, many opportunities and it's been driven by technology, sequencing. People may be aware of uh, genome editing. Uh, we can actually do genetic screens now in the lab to identify vulnerabilities in cancer. And we're doing that many people around the world. So we have concepts that if we can develop drugs against those, then um, we can make a significant headway in lots of different cancers, not just breast, ovarian, prostate, in a small subset of those. The the opportunity is 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 really is really vast and uh, it will only increase as I see it. And it's it's very much uh the time I think in the next 10, 20 years we're gonna see a um, a remarkable uh development. We're gonna be able to hand over, you know, cutting edge precision medicine for, to Ruth to put into patients, patients who respond initially, they then get resistance. We're going to have treatments that mitigate those resistance. So providing opportunities for those to then uh, continue to survive with those, with those tumors um, for a period of time. And so I think it's a great time. Um, that's my thoughts. Thank you. And uh, Steve. I, I echo those general um, uh, views. I, I think it's building on success. Success can nurture the next generation. I think that's what we're seeing in the realm of DNA repair. Um, but this is ramifying into other arenas as well. 
Um, I think it's, it's about people, hopefully uh, where we are now, that a lot of young people, um, as well as people already in, in science, are realising how noble and how valuable a profession and how exciting a profession being a scientist or a clinician uh, can actually be. Um, so it's about people. It's these exciting new technologies, uh, some of which I, you know, we didn't even conceive five, ten years ago, are now routine. Science is moving more quickly. Um, and I think the other thing is is that um, you know we're we're very good at these kind of things here in the UK, obviously with our international networks. And you know I've had my academic lab for over thirty years now, uh, but I I'm probably more excited, or as excited as I've ever been, because of all these things. And I've spent half my day today uh, with a new company that I've just established with colleagues, um, which we hope is using some of these new technologies to come up with a next generation of therapies for cancer and also other diseases. So exciting times. Thank you so much. Thank you very much to all of you. Uh, a big thank you to my guests, Professor Steve Jackson, Professor Simon Bolton and Professor Ruth Plummer. It's really uh, very humbling to hear about everything you do and thank you for everything you do and for everything that uh, Cancer Research UK does as well for all of us who That's are true. affected by it and our families. Uh, thank you very much. Wonderful to talk to you. Um, I would uh, like to just uh, hand over now to Dr. Robert Easton to close our evening here. So um, very many thanks from me and over to Dr. Robert Easton, who is a, a trustee for CRUK for his closing thoughts. Robert, over to you. Thank you, Jane. And definitely humbling, uh, the whole story. In fact, I, I find the whole story uh, completely astounding. Uh, and uh, that's what CRUK as, as a funder does so well, which is convert basic science uh, into uh, really fantastic uh, patient outcomes. But what you've heard tonight is just what it takes. You know, it takes uh, teamwork. It takes a lot of patience. Uh, I love the story about the pub in Oxford. Uh, you know, the, these random things come together and, and make a success of it. But it also takes funding. Uh, funding is key, long-term funding, uh, and that's what CRUK does very well. And you heard the word bold say, said several times. Uh, that's what it takes. It takes bold decisions to fund these sorts of initiatives through to uh, completion, which is what you've seen uh, today. Uh, and PARP is also a great example of core funding to basic science getting commercialized. You heard about the two spin-outs, in fact, a third one just from Steve at the end there, uh, which in turn, once a commercialization event happens, you get this licensing recycling uh, back into CRUK, which is of course not for profit, so the money simply flows uh, through to the scientists again. And those are quite chunky numbers. So uh, about eight million pounds a year currently from licensing come from PARP inhibitors, uh, about 25 million cumulatively in total. And that number is going up over time as we do uh, more licensing. Anyway, uh, my name is Robert Easton. I'm a new trustee. I'm a few uh, months into my role as a trustee, uh, and it's great to participate in these sorts of sessions because I'm a scientist by background and I love the science, and that's what really has brought me uh, to CRUK. Uh, and I am a scientist by background. I was a, a, a DPhil from Oxford University in organic synthesis. But my science career is ancient history. I spent most of my time uh, in a 35 year career in private equity, which makes me squarely in the lucky guy category uh, and there are certainly other private equity folks uh, on the call tonight who also fall in that category uh, and i've left mainstream private equity now and i divide my time roughly half and half between deploying my own capital uh, in investments because i still like to invest and the other half doing philanthropy and i think of philanthropy pretty much like i think about investing 
uh, I do all of the same rigor uh, on due diligence uh, up front, uh, and uh, I, I expect a return uh, from uh, that investment. And I think of it as an investment. And the return, of course, in philanthropy is is different from the uh, from the, uh, the uh, uh, from the financial world. Uh, I deploy capital in seven verticals, uh, and uh, those verticals uh, of, of those verticals, science gets by far the most. Uh, airtime and by far the most uh, pan notes. Uh, so uh, when I drifted into the philanthropy thing about 15 years ago, I didn't really have a full understanding of uh, what I was doing. Uh, I've learned a lot. Uh, a few fellows I've learned, I've learned you can't save the world. Uh, Bill Gates is trying to do that and he may well succeed. Uh, but you can make the right decisions about where you deploy capital uh, for the maximum uh, impact. I would say impact measurement uh, is what you get back is is definitely patchy, but I think CRUK does a very very good job of that. Uh, people really matter. You've had some great scientists in front of you tonight, so you can you can see that. But leverage really matters too. If you want huge outcomes and, and really big impact, you have to have leverage, and that's not business BS. It, it's it's you want to create that sort of multiplier effect. For example, if you deploy money in sub-Saharan Africa, you can raise lives out of, of a slum in Kampala, and I do that, uh, but it's it's not a scalable event. Each life costs the same. Uh, whereas you're investing with CRUK in great science, and you get that fantastic leverageable effect. You fund great people. You've heard about tonight doing basic science. You coach them through their careers. You make them part of the network and ecosystem in the UK, and you can get a small number of people uh, with a relatively small amount of money to have amazing multiplier effects. Uh, and of course, when CRUK does that, it doesn't just do it in the UK, it does it globally. Uh, so the impact you've heard of tonight, and of course, it's going to save you know many, many lives, hundreds of thousands of lives, millions of lives probably uh, across the globe. Now, granted, the hit rate is low if you were picking the scientists yourself, but that's what CRUK does so well. We're embedded in the UK science community. We all know what a fabulous story UK science is. CRUK has access to the best scientists. It also has a great group of people inside the shop who are deploying and deciding where to deploy the capital for you. So the chances of success, like you've heard of tonight, are hugely enhanced by committing that money through CRUK. So my message is simple. Path inhibitors is a great story. I, I love it. It's the first time I've heard the, the full thing. Um, but it's only part of what we do at CIUK. We want to do more uh, and we can do more, but of course that requires funding. Uh, and it requires funding from many diversified sources. And we see philanthropy and major gifts as a very important part of that uh, funding as we seek to grow impact in the future. So on that important note, a call to action for everybody. Uh, and thank you very much for your support. Uh, I will close the session by saying thanks you, thank to you for, uh, for attending. Thanks to Ruth, uh, Steve, and Simon for a fantastic story, brilliant stuff, and to Jane for hosting so graciously. Thank you and good night.